It was the late summer of 2016, and Avril Haines was the point person for President Obama's White House in dealing with the most sensitive national security issue facing the U.S. government, an attack by Russia on the American election. Who was Avril Haines, and how did she find herself coordinating the response to a brazen operation by a foreign power to subvert American democracy itself? She was at that point the deputy national security advisor, capping an unlikely rise to the top of the U.S. American intelligence and national security establishment. A graduate of an elite Japanese judo school with a brown belt, she majored in theoretical physics at the University of Chicago, opened up an independent bookstore, became a community organizer, and somehow also find the time to go to law school, after which she landed a job as a legal advisor in the State Department. Before long, she had become the top lawyer on Obama's National Security Council, where she was weighing in on the legality of highly classified covert operations and lethal drone strikes. Obama took a shine to Haynes, admiring her sharp legal mind, her ability to build consensus, and her ferocious work ethic. He appointed her deputy director of the CIA in 2013, the first woman to hold that position. In 2015, Haynes returned to the White House as the top deputy to National Security Advisor Susan Rice, just months before Donald Trump announced he was running for president and the FBI began to see the first evidence of Russian meddling in American politics. How did the Obama White House respond to the Russian attack? Why didn't it speak out earlier? And what did it know about the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign? In a Skullduggery exclusive, we'll ask of real Haynes about these and other momentous events that continue to reverberate through American politics. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Michael Isagov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. So, uh, Dan, uh, it's um, really a... Uh, treat uh, to have Avril Haines here because she's kind of been below radar uh, during the whole controversy about the uh, 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 Trump-Russia collusion investigation. But she played a pretty key role from the get-go in this. Uh, But you have your own sort of personal history with Avril. Uh, I think you like did the first major profile right. of it, her. Yeah, right? it's actually kind of a funny story. She does have one of the more unusual kind of personal uh, stories that I've ever encountered um, covering um, politics in Washington. Um, and, and here's how I learned about her. So in 2015, Obama named her um, uh, a deputy CIA director, um, first woman to hold that position. Um, most people didn't had no clue who she was. I had heard about her because of her role as a lawyer for the National Security Council. I was covering those issues. Um, at the time, I was working for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. And uh, one of my colleagues there, a, a young reporter who's now a pretty talented political reporter named Ben Jacobs, uh, did a very quick story about her. He Googled her name and he found out uh, that in the 90s, she and her husband – 
owned an independent bookstore in Fells Point, Baltimore. And on Wednesday, she did erotica readings uh, at mm. the bookstore. And it's it's all. Well, do we have do we have tapes of any of those erotica <laughs> readings? Well, we, we can ask her. I think we, we need to. Do, yeah. That would be a yeah. real skull that yeah, special absolutely. to play them. Right. So um, I thought, okay, you know, this woman, you know, probably has a more interesting story than just that. Um, that's all we wrote about that night. I get a call from uh, Kathy Rumler, who was the White House counsel, and she's ripping into me and telling me what a terrible sexist story we published. Uh, on this woman, that she has this incredible stories, amazing co- accomplishments, brilliant lawyer, and, and all, all we write about is, is, is that, erotica. Yeah, so erotica you know, readings. so pro- yeah. profile and courage. Look, I had nothing to do with the story. I sent her to Tina Brown, who was the editor um, of the magazine. So you take it up with Tina. But in the meantime, I thought, okay, well, if this woman's so interesting, um, tell me more about her, and maybe I should do a profile. And so, sure enough. Um, I start hearing about her background, and it really is extraordinary. I mean, this is a woman um, who, um, first of all, she grew up in this kind of eccentric household on the Upper West Side um, of, uh, of New York. Her mother was an, a scientist who became an artist. Her father was a biochemist and academic. She actually had to take care of her chronically ill mother from the time she was a small girl, up, you know, doing all-nighters with her mother um, you know, who, who would have these medical emergencies. And then she goes off, as we said before in the introduction, she becomes a brown belt at this, you know, elite judo institute, theoretical physics at the University of Chicago. One thing that we did not say in, in the introduction is that she became a pilot, um, met, her, met her now husband, who was her flying instructor, went off and bought a, an aging uh, Cessna twin-engine plane. She rebuilt the avionics of that plane herself they end up uh, bringing it up to Maine, and then they're going to fly to England. They're flying over the Labrador Sea, and they, they lose an engine. I think they're in a storm or something. And then they lose a second engine, um, and they have to basically do a crash landing in Newfoundland. And they're taken in by this, you know, village in this rural part of Newfoundland. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, a few years later, um, she's, you know, like presiding over... Uh, you know, questions about whether suspected terrorists in Pakistan should be incinerated with drone strikes. So it's an amazing story. And then she finds herself, of course, in the middle of, uh, you know, this, um, you know, this unbelievable, astonishing story about the Russians, you know, subverting American democracy. So I I did um, I did uh, interview her for uh, Russian roulette and uh, she described uh, uh, the uh, her role, which was the sort of coordinating what the response of the Obama White House would be as one of the most difficult decisions she had to make in government. And, that, and I think we want to delve deep into um, into that and also to see what she um, uh, what she can tell us at, at a time that the president is uh, denouncing a scandal he calls Spygate, which is premised on the idea that the Obama White House planted a spy in the Trump campaign. Um, uh, It strikes me that if anybody would have known about that, it would be of real hands. Absolutely. And, And of course, you know from the reporting that you did in Russian Roulette that the Obama administration was kind of walking this fine line uh, between, um, you know, trying to figure out what the Russians had done, 
um, and um, and not somehow influencing an American election. Um, and um, you know, the, the pretty typical of of President Obama and his his White House, which is uh, very nuanced and um, sometimes overthinking. Um, all of these issues and not acting as decisively as some people wish they had. But before we get to a real, we actually have a real life Trump defender on Skullduggery today. Somebody who's raised a lot of eyebrows uh, with his criticism of special counsel Mueller and his defense of the president's legal position, uh, Alan Dershowitz. Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. So uh, you have uh, become uh, quite a TV presence uh, in recent months, basically uh, defending President Trump uh, and uh, criticizing the special counsel investigation of him, uh, which has surprised a lot of your uh, uh, former friends on the left. Uh, so I wanted to uh, just get uh, your sense of wh- what do you tell your friends uh, when they express mm-hmm. angst about your uh, uh, defense of the president? I wish it was just angst. Uh, some of them <laughs> express horror and, and real animosity sometimes. You know, I wish they'd go back and look at my history. Uh, oh, about every decade or every other decade, uh, I get on television a lot to defend the unpopular. It started with Richard Nixon when I was on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union, and the government uh, named him as an unindicted co-conspirator, which I thought was unfair. I was in favor of impeaching Nixon. But I was there to protect his civil liberties because I was afraid that uh, when his civil liberties were in any way diminished, all of our civil liberties would. And then, of course, I was on television defending O.J. Simpson, which didn't make me very many friends. And then Bill Clinton, which made me a lot of friends uh, on the left. In fact, I was saying about Bill Clinton almost exactly what I'm saying about um, uh, Donald Trump and his accusers and about special counsel. But the left adored me for my um, statements about Bill Clinton, and they despised me for making exactly the same statements about a political figure they, they, they despise. But I put uh, the Constitution before politics, and I'm always going to be there to defend the civil liberties of anybody I think is being treated unfairly, whether it's Nazis marching through Skokie or pornographers or um, or very, very controversial presidents of the United States. But it has hurt me only because some of my family members uh, who used to take pride in people saying, oh, you are related to Alan Dershowitz, now say, uh, people say to them, you're related to Alan Dershowitz? Oh, my God. Right. Now, How can you justify what he's been saying about Donald Trump? Yeah. Now, I see you have a book uh, that will be coming out in July, uh, The Case Against Impeaching Trump. So here's my question. Uh, Obviously, Robert Mueller has not uh, finished with his investigation. We do not know what he has uncovered in the course of it. How can you make a case against impeaching uh, the president without knowing what the evidence is against the president? Well, I start the book by saying based on the evidence that's publicly available, I take a very, very controversial view in the book. I argue that to be impeached and removed under the Constitution – you must be guilty of a specified crime. Uh, I reject the uh, Gerald Ford notion that the criteria for impeachment is anything a majority of the House says it is and anything uh, the Senate two-thirds says it is. I do believe very strongly that one has to follow the text of the Constitution, which requires conviction 
and that's the word, conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And so my argument is really based on a, an interpretation of the Constitution. It's not a political argument, and it's based on the evidence that's currently available. I say in the book that, look, if evidence were to come out of treason or bribery or any other high crime and misdemeanor, obviously, my views would change. But uh, the thrust of the book is you can't impeach a president and remove him because of malpractice in office, maladministration, any of the other criteria that people have been focusing on. My friend and colleague Larry Tribe has written a very, very compelling and brilliant book um, about this in which he takes the opposite point of view and says that the criteria for impeachment should be interpreted based on a living constitution and it should include criteria other than those uh, specifically uh, enumerated in the constitution. So we have an interesting argument. Well, let's let's talk about some of your specific uh, legal arguments uh, because Richard Nixon, sure. had he been impeached, likely would have been impeached, among other things, on for uh, obstruction of justice. And and that would have been the right thing. That would have been the right thing. He obstructed justice without a doubt. He he um, paid hush money to witnesses. He lied, told his people to lie to the FBI. He destroyed evidence. He um, uh, engaged in other obstructions of justice. My point is, if of course, if any president does that, He's guilty of obstruction of justice. My point is that you can't be guilty of obstruction of justice if you're the president simply for exercising your constitutionally authorized powers under Article 2 of the Constitution. All right. Well, let's examine that premise um, a little bit. So uh, so basically you're arguing that that uh, Trump had essentially absolute power to fire Comey uh, uh, as long as he was doing it as part of his exercising his proper constitutional authority. But what sure. I what, mean I go so, yeah. Well yeah, what 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 if the president um is overheard on a wiretap saying, you know, Bob Mueller is closing in on me. I'm going right. to fire that son of a bitch before he indicts me. Is, is that yeah, He could have even said that. He could have said that on television. Uh and that would not change the situation. That would president not change your view. No. Right. No, no, and it would not change the law. The president is the head of the unitary executive branch. He could tell, he could demand of the FBI that they close an investigation of him. Uh, he could demand that they not prosecute uh, X, Y, or Z. Uh, Jefferson uh, demanded that his attorney general uh, prosecute uh, Aaron Burr. Uh, president Lincoln demanded that... Well, that's a little different, isn't it? I mean, demanding that his Justice Department, uh, I mean, he is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, in a sense, as president. But 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 to uh, to demand um, your Justice Department not to investigate you or to fire uh, the head of the FBI who is investigating you, isn't there is there no difference there? There is a difference politically. There's no difference constitutionally. The Constitution could have obviously put in a clause providing that the president cannot take actions that are self-serving. For example, that he couldn't pardon himself or he couldn't pardon people who are testifying against him. But let me just take you back to Nixon for a second. There's no question uh, that the president has the constitutional authority to – as head of the executive branch, direct the say the CIA to do whatever he thought was in the national security interest of the country. But what was the right. smoking gun tape in the with Nixon? It's when the, it was the tape 
that showed that he directed the CIA to tell the FBI to stay out of the uh, Watergate investigation. That's what broke Nixon. That's what drove Republicans to go to to, to the White House. Barry Goldwater leading the uh, leading the charge, telling the president he had to resign because it was evidence of the president acting with corrupt intent, using his constitutional authority, but acting with corrupt intent. So under your view that you're articulating here, uh, Nixon had the absolute authority to direct the CIA to meddle in the FBI investigation, keep it out of, uh, uh, keep it against going after him. Um, Is that, don't you see a problem with that argument? No, first, I wouldn't go that far. I think if, um, if Nixon deliberately misled and lied to the FBI or the CIA, uh, told them to say falsely that this is a national security issue, that would be different because it is an obstruction of justice to lie and a crime, an independent crime to lie to law enforcement. Officials. So if the but, president you know, says publicly he's firing Comey because he's concerned about what Comey did during the Hillary Clinton email investigation, but he's really trying to stop the Russia investigation, isn't that a lie and the same sort of You were allowed misuse. to lie. There's nothing either illegal or unconstitutional about lying. You're not allowed to lie to a law enforcement official or to a grand jury or under oath. But if lying were a crime or an impeachable offense, uh, we would have very few presidents who would survive that kind of scrutiny. Look, I don't like what the Constitution says. I don't like the fact that we have a unitary executive. I wrote about this back during the Clinton impeachment, uh, and I said we have to change the law. It shouldn't be the law that the um, that the um, president has the authority over the Justice Department. We're the only country in the Western world that does that. In England, for example, there is a director of public prosecution, totally, totally out of the political realm. In Israel, the attorney general is not answerable to uh, the prime minister or the legislature. That's what should be the law here. But there's an enormous difference between what the law should be and what the law is. And the law today is and has been since Adams, uh, when he demanded prosecution under the Alien and Sedition Act in Jefferson, demanded the prosecution of his political foe for personal reasons. And they were so clearly personal reasons. Since that time, we do have this unitary executive. It's a mistake. It's a fallacy. It's something that the Constitution shouldn't have done. But we can't interpret our way out of it, unfortunately. We have to either amend the Constitution or, at the very least, pass a statute setting up an independent council within or outside the Justice Department. My preference would be outside the Justice Department, within the judiciary, which is um, appointed for a 20-year term, a 10-year term, subject to confirmation by the Senate, not answerable to the president. That way the president couldn't fire him, couldn't influence him, but under the current law, it's a mistake, but under the current law, the president has that authority, and you can't change the law and retrospectively apply it to this president because we don't like them. One thing that I think our listeners um, will want to know is what exactly uh, sort of is your role in ad- in advising uh, President Trump? Are you actually? I don't. Ad- you're not I advising don't advise at all, President Trump. Are you, oh, not at all. No. I, um, I, I, I say well, you what go I say on his favorite print. TV show, Sean yeah, Hannity, yeah, quite a bit. That's well, I, that's no, a I, way I've of advising been, him. I've actually been much more often recently on CNN and on CNBC. 
I was on Anderson Cooper this week, last week, the week before. I was on Meet the Press. I was on uh, You were on uh, Hannity George nine times last month. And I was on Hannity. Uh, I haven't been on Hannity now for uh, probably a, a month. I want to make my civil liberties point as widely as possible. I turned down an opportunity to be a Fox commentator because I don't want to be um, uh, I don't want to lose my independence. What, what about down, what have you turned down the opportunity to be a formal um, adv- a lawyer for the president? Has he asked you to to uh, to be I, his, I his lawyer? I can't tell you who ever asked me to be their lawyer, but I can tell you that I have stated publicly unequivocally that I would not accept uh, appointment at this time as being a Donald Trump's lawyer. I want to maintain my independence. I want to be able to say what I believe. Sometimes it'll be very critical of President Trump. Sometimes it'll be supportive. Um, I did play a formal role in the Bill Clinton impeachment. I advised his legal team. I had a lawyer-client relationship. I do not have that with President Trump. And if you were his lawyer, if you were his lawyer, would you uh, advise him not to submit to an interview with with, uh, Robert Mueller? I always advise my clients not to submit to interviews with prosecutors. Prosecutors are never trying to help you in an interview. They're trying to hurt you. Uh, Mostly interviews like this are perjury traps. Comey said in his book the reason they didn't interview Hillary Clinton before they drafted the exoneration letter is by the time you're up to interviewing somebody, you know all the facts. The only purpose of the interview is to see whether they're going to tell the truth. That's a perjury trap. What do you think he's going to do? What do you think he's going to do? Well, I think he will either testify – uh, in in an informal setting with constraints and limitations on the amount of time and the subject matter, or he will not, and he'll be subpoenaed and challenge it in court and raise all kinds of constitutional issues against the subpoena, some of which he may win, some of which he may lose. Does but it, it won't be a complete victory. Does it bother think. you that the president basically has pressured his Justice Department to turn over information to Congress uh, Republicans in Congress about uh, a confidential informant that the FBI was using to a- collect information. Absolutely not. Uh, look, I have been a hawk on informers uh, since the Civil Rights Movement when the Justice Department, the good Justice Department, the good guys, the Kennedy administration uh, had informers, the FBI had informers with Martin Luther King, and they were saying they did it to help Martin Luther King, to make sure that he wasn't being influenced by communists. I was part of the campaign against uh, infiltration of the anti-war movement. I don't like informers. And the and how do you expect the FBI to collect information uh, when it's doing a counterintelligence investigation first, without informants? First of all, first of all uh, I, I have written for years that before you can plant an informer in an organization, you should have to have probable cause. You should have to get an informal warrant. No court has ever accepted that. But that's been my view. Look, the major point is my views haven't changed at all. I am a civil libertarian. I may be the only civil libertarian left because the ACOU certainly is asleep at the wheel. And most people today are picking sides. If you're for Trump, then you forget about civil liberties. If you're against, uh, 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 no, if you're for Trump, you're a great civil libertarian. If you're against Trump, you forget about civil liberties. I have taken the same views on informers, on um, expanding the criminal law, on impeachment right from the beginning. And I'm not going to change my views because I voted against this president and 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 uh, voted strongly for his 
for his political opponent. I, you know, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I contributed to her campaign. I wanted to see her be president. I would be saying exactly the same thing if Hillary Clinton were president today, and they were trying to lock her up and impeach her, which they would be trying to do. And if that happened, all the Democrats would be my friends and all the Republicans would be my enemies. These are all fair-weather friends, fair-weather civil libertarians. I am not a fair-weather civil libertarian. I Got stick it. to my civil liberties okay. principles no matter what. All right. Well, Professor, thanks uh, for joining us, and we will have you back when your book is actually out and we could uh, uh, tear into the uh, in your into good, your arguments. Good. I, I, I enjoy being I enjoy being torn into. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank right. you. Thank you, Professor. We'll be back with more skullduggery. And now for a somewhat different perspective on uh, matters relating to President Trump and Russia, we are joined by the aforementioned Avril Haines. Uh, Avril, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with both of you. Um, We are going to want to delve deep into uh, the Russia story and your very unique role in it. But before we get there, you were the first woman deputy director of the CIA. Uh, We now have a woman director of the CIA, Gina Haspel. Um, What are your thoughts on Gina Haspel? Sure. So I publicly supported her during the nomination and confirmation process. And, uh, did you I, know her at the CIA? I did, absolutely. Worked closely with her in a variety of scenarios. I have really the utmost respect for her. I think she's somebody who is extraordinarily talented. She knows the building. She knows the mission. She cares about the workforce. She's extremely qualified for the job. And she's also somebody that, in my view, exercised very good judgment on the issues that we dealt with. I never talked to her about her experiences in the program that obviously has been the big focus of attention, the enhanced interrogation or any of the other aspects of that program. Um, And uh, uh, one other quick question just on the news of the week. Uh, You obviously spent a lot of time dealing with North Korea when you're at the CIA and at the NSC. Uh, The president has just canceled the summit. Yes, Yeah, it has really been an odd just sequence of events in my perspective. But it's – I hope very much that the event of canceling the summit and so on does not mean that there's a complete breakdown that leads to a provocation cycle that we've seen in the past before. And I think that's probably one of the greater risks that we face right now given the sort of level of rhetoric and uh, kind of provocation opportunities that we're seeing. So that's probably my main concern, but I think I'm like everybody else kind of watching and seeing what's going to happen. Would you think happen. that this is sort of more posturing and jockeying on, on both sides or is it just – is he – is is the, well, actually both of these leaders, are they just totally unpredictable and there's no, there's no way of knowing what's actually going on? So look, the cynic in me and obviously I have no inside knowledge on uh, either what's going on in terms of in our president's – mind on this issue or Kim Jong-un's. But but I would say that you could certainly paint the story that Kim Jong-un has played this situation very effectively. He's basically gotten a detente. He's now essentially, um, in a way, he has uh, opened the door for some possible movement on, you know, sanctions and other things with respect to his country, and uh, he's taken the pressure off to some extent on North Korea in a way. And uh, and in sort of having this back and forth that has resulted in 
a uh, stop of the summit, he's actually managed to sort of playing a rope-a-dope game where he's delaying, in effect, what's going to happen, but doing so in a way that doesn't lead to additional pressure at the same time. And he makes it look as if we're walking away from this situation where, you know, previously the problem was from China's perspective that we weren't engaging enough and so on. And so that was part of the reason. You're, you're, making, some, yeah. you're making me think he should write the North Korean uh, version of The Art of the Deal. Yeah, exactly. He may be, he may be out negotiating <laughs> Trump. I know. It, it certainly – I think you could see it that way. Was, yes. the, pre- was the president right to cancel the summit? I, look, I have um, – I had concerns with the way the summit was laid on to begin with. So I think that's a part of the problem. Like this is one of the key points of leverage that we have is essentially providing Kim Jong-un with legitimacy. And by having a summit, you do that in a sense. And there should have been a game plan for what you were going to get out of that step. And uh, it felt to me as if it wasn't as effectively coordinated beyond, obviously, South Korea as it might have been. And there were a variety of other things that could have been done to set the table for that. So I'm not sure I thought it was a great idea to begin with. But once we went down that path, it seemed to me that talking is better than uh, essentially dropping bombs. And that's a good thing. So we should try to figure out a way to make it work. Now that we've gotten ourselves into this situation, it's just hard to tell what the next step is to see progress in the situation. Um, let's uh, uh, let's delve into Russia because you you played a pretty important role. You were coordinating the Obama White House response to uh, the Russian uh, cyber attacks and other other aspects of its multifaceted campaign to meddle in our election. Uh, this week, the president has gone on a tear uh, of what he calls Spygate. Uh, the 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 claim that the Obama administration placed an informant inside the Trump campaign. Um, were you aware at the White House when you were dealing with this that there was an informant working for the FBI who was talking to people in the Trump campaign? No, absolutely not. But I'll tell you that uh, the way at least the White House worked when I was there there would be a very strong wall essentially between what was happening in the law enforcement area and what we knew in the White House. And uh, we didn't even know at the time that there was an investigation as such. That was not something that would be told You were not even aware there was a counterintelligence investigation by the FBI into Russian attempts to um, uh, penetrate the Trump campaign. So I'm not going to talk about specific – conversations or knowledge in the context of my time in the White House. That's off the limits of what I can discuss. But what I can tell you is that typically we would not even be told when there is an investigation of such a thing. And uh, and basically, you know, we certainly wouldn't know how they were conducting an investigation in the sort of, you know, details of where they had X, Y, or Z. Well, in, re- in retrospect, uh, does it surprise you at all uh, that the FBI – um, used an informant to have those kinds of interactions with the Trump campaign when there was evidence of, uh, you know, uh, Russians trying to penetrate the Trump campaign. So, look, um, I think it's certainly not surprising to me that the FBI would look for ways to get information so that they could determine, essentially, in the course of their investigation, whether or not there was a credible case or not, right. something that they should hand over to prosecute. How they conduct their business is just not something I'm not, you know, nearly expert enough in, frankly, to know what the SOPs are for that. The standard. I, I just want to have one follow up on that because in the House Intelligence Committee report, 
um, there's a reference to uh, – they make the point that the FBI never gave an, a defensive briefing to um, the Trump campaign after becoming aware of the various contacts that Russians had made with people in the uh, uh, who were advisors to Trump. And they do say the FBI uh, – it was the issue of a defensive briefing was again discussed by the administration's most senior policymakers after Director Comey briefed the National Security Council principals about the Carter Page information in late spring 2016. So that is a that seems to be evidence that the NSC and you were the deputy director was briefed about concerns that the FBI had about uh, Russian uh, penetration of the Trump campaign. Right. So what you're saying, I think um, here's the the confusion. When I say that you that they typically would not tell us when they have launched an investigation, right, that's a very precise term, right? In other words, there's a moment in which the FBI determines we are going to conduct an investigation into X, and right. they don't typically tell the White House when they do that and why. However, they do give us on a regular basis essentially briefings that refer to counterintelligence issues. So in other words, you should be aware that there are the following counterintelligence concerns, right? They don't tell us what is an investigation and who they are investigating in that particular circumstance, but they will tell us where there is something that we need to be aware of essentially, you know, if they have information that indicates that there is, uh, you know, a Chinese spy in this particular scenario and internal or otherwise that type of thing. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. But okay. so it sounds like, I mean, there, there was at least a briefing of the counterintelligence concerns about what the Russians were doing. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been widely reported and I've been on the record and others have been on the record to talk about the fact that we knew, obviously, information about the Russians interfering in our election. There were statements. There was also information that would be shared as a regular basis of counterintelligence about individuals that might have been part of that. So at some point, you you, you learn that, that Putin had ordered uh, uh, this interference with an American election and that it was a, a full-scale active measure, measure by the Russians. Um, do you remember that moment and what your reaction was when you learned that? I remember learning when we knew that um, basically and, and heard from the CIA that uh, you know, it went to the highest levels in the Russian government basically. You knew what that meant. That was and, – yeah, one can draw their conclusions yeah. and, yeah, exactly. The precise information remains classified, I believe. But um, but basically that they were interfering in our election, precisely what you're saying, Dan. And, uh, and I do remember, you know, so now we've got this information and we have to figure out how do we manage the situation. And, uh, and part of it was trying to understand exactly what that meant. So interfering in the election can range, obviously – from a sort of very extensive covert influence campaign in which you're trying to put information into the system and uh, whether it be fake or real or otherwise and um, and try to sway how people think in the country about an issue and about an election and about a candidate. And then it can go as far, obviously, as some of the concerns that we've expressed uh, since then, which is it can actually affect the vote count potentially. Under certain circumstances, they could be taking active measures is usually how that's referred to. And uh, and in that context, we, you know, that was sort of our first, okay, so tell us more. Help us understand exactly what you know. Well, how extensive is what they're doing? And also, how confident are you? 
uh, about the information that you're providing to us. And that requires a kind of coordinated effort among the intelligence community process. And as we got more information, we started to, to try to piece it in the sense of, okay, they're doing things that are unacceptable and we have to respond to that. They also appear to be setting up to do additional things which are more in the vein of potentially affecting the vote count. And that requires, uh, you know, a different essentially strategy to deal with. It requires both thinking about how do you actually deter, prevent, stop what it is that they're doing before it happens and also how do you respond to what they've been doing thus far. So just take us back uh, to that period because – this was a real hot potato um, for the Obama administration, and I'm interested in hearing you talk about um, the all the considerations um, that you all were talking about and how to respond to this because um, obviously it was a very serious thing that the Russians had done with grave implications for our national security and for our uh, our, our democracy, um, but also there were concerns about um, you know how. how if if this becomes public, if you tell the American people, are you in some ways doing the Russians' work for them? Are you amplifying this? Talk about that whole thought process and how it played out in those days after you learn about it. Yeah, it, it really was, as I've said before, and I know even to Michael, just one of the most complex things that I've had to deal with because there were so many different ways and dimensions, you know, to <laughs> think about it. So, um you know, on the one hand, you have sort of a straightforward uh, piece to it, which is to say there's the policy question. So we, you know, basically said, OK, we know – I knew certainly many deputies knew, many senior officials understood that the Russians had historically conducted covert influence campaigns in relation to our elections in the past. And so that was something we just asked for history on and we you know, went Ameri- through the process. To American elections. To American yeah. I mean, elections. They did it in Europe but also – but also yeah. to American elections, yeah. exactly. And so we looked at, okay, so what's happening here? How is it different? What's the, you know, change here? And how have we dealt with it in the past? And how should we deal with it here? And thinking about it. And then, as I said, there was this information that indicated that there were uh, hacks into register rolls, old register rolls, for um, many of the, uh, you know, states, essentially, election infrastructure. And um, and in that context, you know, we sort of had the first play of, OK, how vulnerable is our electoral infrastructure and got, you know, the, essentially the intelligence estimate on that issue um, to get rolling and make sure that we have a full understanding of it and how can we help to protect our election infrastructure. And then, uh, and then of course, the question to the intelligence community, OK, what does it mean? Are they getting this information on register rolls because – they want to improve their information campaign because they want to understand who's registered which way, what's the situation, right? Or is it actually to, in fact, do something with it that would affect votes? For example, you know, you could imagine changing addresses of, you know, individuals who are registered to vote, right? And therefore, when they come to the polls, they can't actually vote because the registration address doesn't match their mm-hmm. ID mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could just imagine a variety of different ways in which this right. could be a done. A parade of horribles that could have taken place on election day because right. the Russians might have flipped a digit in somebody's social security number. Could have done instance. something that would just make it impossible right. to count. Exactly. But, you, I mean, then that's just one of many different possibilities for how you might think about it. And then you want to know, like, so is this something that they're they're doing, they're planning because they're going to do or – and that decision has already been made or are they still deciding that? Is this just preparatory work as well? That's another possibility, right? And is this something that's coming from the highest levels or not? Like how is that being thought through? 
So we saw the question of, okay, we let's assume for the moment and we had, you know, the intelligence view was that at least it was a possibility, even probable, right, that they hadn't necessarily made a decision to move forward on actually affecting the vote count. So how do we actually deter them from doing that? How do we protect every American's vote in a sense, right, as being a part of the process while at the same time working up the response options to what they've already done, which mm-hmm. is unacceptable, right? So so we do that piece. We then just talk together about what is it that makes the most sense. We get analysis across the government. And the view was that having a private message from the president to Putin would be the best way, essentially, to do this. Okay, and as you know, that was a pretty controversial decision, especially in retrospect. A lot of people thought, number one, you needed to say something publicly. And we're talking about the summer of 2016 here. Uh, These meetings that you were chairing, I think, were mostly in August, um, run up to that summit where the the private warning was given, but you didn't tell the American public that Russia was attacking the election. So let me disagree with that because these are not mutually exclusive options. And we also were moving forward on telling the American people. That didn't come till later. It didn't come till later for the following reason, right? So it wasn't because we weren't like, you know, we were just dithering and we didn't know what we were going to say or whether we were going to do it. The reason Mm -hmm. it took time is because we knew we wanted to have the intelligence community tied up, first of all. In other words, that there is a consensus, that there's confidence that you could say the Russians are interfering in our election. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two is we thought if we could make a statement and do it on a bipartisan basis with the Congress, that would be more effective, right? So at the same time that we're pursuing responses to what they've done, right, like Mm -hmm. teeing those up so that we can respond when we're ready to do that, Also trying to deter them from moving forward into something that could affect the vote, right, Mm -hmm. which is the private message from the president to Putin that says, if you go further, right, there will be significant consequences. And as we're doing that, we can't have him bluff, right? So we actually have to think through what are those significant consequences? What would we be prepared to roll out on? What could we, what would that look like? And at the same time, Everybody agrees we need to tell the American people, right? And the question on the American people part is how do you do that in the most effective way given that your voice from the White House in particular, right, is tainted by the fact that the president is also the head of one of the political parties and anything he says may be And is supporting the Democratic candidate. Right, exactly. Out campaigning on a regular basis, right? right? So how do you do that, right? So – had our conversations. We said, well, we need the intelligence community to have confidence in this opinion, right? That's going to be the thing that people will question and wonder, right? So we asked the intelligence community, come together, draft a statement that you're all comfortable with, and we're not going to be editing it from How the White House. We're going to be able to do to it. to draft a statement? There it's, was like a it's two not... or three paragraphs that they put out in October. It seems <laughs> to me, a lot of people think, <laughs> you know, you could have written that several months earlier. It doesn't take that long. It's not about drafting the statement that takes a long time. What it takes time yeah. to do is yeah. to actually get a consensus in the intelligence community. And it also took time for us to go through the process of briefing Congress and seeing if we could get a bipartisan statement. And when which we in, went the, which to in brief, the end you didn't. No, we didn't. Were you surprised? Surprised yeah. that Mitch McConnell, the uh, this uh, genuinely, your expectation was that you'd be able to get that. I really did. I Mitch McConnell is you know, Senator McConnell's a smart guy. He's been around for a long time. I don't think he's uh, got rose-colored glasses on around you know what the Kremlin does and and how Putin acts. And yet, was really genuinely surprised. And and he had access to 
all of the information because another layer to this that made it very complicated was how sensitive some of the information was. And it's not that that the sensitive information changed the overall conclusion, i.e. that the Russians interfere. In fact, it bolstered it. Mm-hmm. You ter- could get that conclusion. But it was in terms just, of sources yeah. and methods? Yeah. And just – so there's, you know, there's some sensitive, very sensitive information. That means you have to keep it compartmented. And so you can only sometimes share that with very few people. And Mitch McConnell was one of the people who had access to that mm-hmm. and yet still um, – but as you know, there were people on your staff. Uh, we had as a guest on the show Michael Daniel last week, uh, the White House cyber coordinator. And as uh, I and David Korn wrote in our book, uh, he drafted op- options for some very aggressive responses, uh, cyber attacks on Russian news sites, uh, going after some of the uh, Russian online personas that and were even dumping Put- the emails. And even Putin's family. Well, that was uh, – yeah, uh, Celeste. Wallander had uh, options uh, for uh, exposing what what we knew about what the U.S. government knew about the corruption in in Putin's government and his family to give him a taste of his own medicine. There was a strong argument that you had to do it in real time. You couldn't wait several months to kick the can down the road or let Hillary Clinton do it. And uh, they got told Michael Daniel got told by your boss, Susan Rice, to stand down. So stop I, working on those options. I wasn't present for, you know, this supposed conversation that occurred. I what I can tell you is just as follows. I don't so in the compartmented craziness that we had to deal with because of the sensitivity of the information, the meetings that that we had did not include folks that were essentially below the deputy's level um in in the conversations that we were going through. And so when we ended up deciding to do the private messaging from the president to Putin based on our views that that would be the best way to deter and to Mm -hmm. push back on action. And at the same time, we had our proposals for how to respond to the existing actions. And we also had, based on the very good work that Michael and Celeste and so on were doing, essentially in an IPC process, Disconnected, being an inter principles committee. No, it's IPC is is basically the interagency policy committee that sits below a deputies committee level. So it's kind of at the assistant secretary level. Okay, all right. We're Um, we're we're government nerds. I know, I know. We didn't even get IPC. Oh my god, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. Next time, hey, next show, I'm going to say I'm going to drop in IPC (laughs) at least a couple of times. I think we're going to do an IPC special on (laughs) Silver. exploring the IPC. Exactly. Yeah. But so they they were working through the sort of more significant responses as well, which would help us to basically not be bluffing when the president says there'll be significant consequences, right? And and much of that doesn't, by the way, their ideas that are put on the ground, but they aren't fleshed out yet. So you don't know what of those things are actually possible when you mm-hmm. push through to them, right? And um, and so after we delivered the message, we said to the intelligence community. Obviously, we want you to watch everything so we see what is the response to the message, right, that, that the president has delivered to Putin. And in fact, we saw over time, essentially, the intelligence community said they appear to have basically not continued to dig in as we saw them digging in on the register rolls pieces. And we said, well, do you think you would see it? In other words, like, could they be doing it, but you wouldn't be seeing it? And they said, yeah, we think we would see it based on our collection, essentially. And uh, as a consequence, we saw, okay, so they seem either, you know, they just were doing their prep work and whatever, or the message has worked because they have not, in fact, moved forward on this. 
And as a consequence, then you have to think to yourself as a policymaker, okay, so we're now up coming up on the election, right? They appear to have stopped their behavior that basically appears to be potentially to affect the vote. Should we now roll out our response options to that? No, obviously, that's what we were threatening to do if they continued to go down that so road. So this is the first time I've heard this, right. uh, that the, you you were drawing a direct correlation between uh, Obama's warning to Putin and their stopping those activities? Yeah, Brennan testified to this in open testimony when he talked in the Russian piece that this was something that they had but, been watching for and seen, and that's there, exactly how that There was developed. a whole other dimension to the Russian campaign. The social media part of it, uh, the Facebook ads, the Twitter bots that continued right through this period, yeah. which Robert Mueller has now indicted the Internet Research Agency for uh, conducting that social media attack on the election. And that continued in spite of the president's warning to uh, uh, Putin. Um, how aware were you? about the social media part of the Russian campaign? So it's a really good question. And this is part of, I think, the complications of, of um, and the place where I feel like we didn't do well uh, in this area. So I, we knew about the social media, the fact that they were using it and that they continued to do their covert influence campaign. Do you know about the right? Facebook ads? I didn't know about the Facebook ads personally, but but that's, let me finish right. kind of giving you sure. the, the landscape and then, yeah. So um, so knew about the fact that they were continuing their covert influence campaign. So you look at prior years and they've done covert influence campaigns and they've used whatever means of media have been available to them for conducting those. And that didn't seem all that surprising, although it's absolutely worth responding to. And I still think it's unacceptable whether it was last year's president, you know, or this year's mm -hmm. election, et cetera. Right. What we didn't, I think, or what at least I personally, I'll just speak for myself, underestimated was the impact it could have and the degree to which it was being effectively used. And part of that is um, not knowing the extent of what they were doing, which obviously is always the case, you know, with any intelligence operation, right? Like you learn more as time goes on and you're able to look back and dig into it and figure out what was going on. And so that's certainly part of this one. But the other thing, too, is that it, it wasn't until after I left government, I remember there was a Pew poll that was done um, after Obama's administration that demonstrated that something like two-thirds of American adults get their news through Facebook, I mean, or social media platforms. That's astounding. I mean, that's really quite amazing. And I, and I did not, I think, um, recognize the degree to which social media platforms would ultimately affect, right, how it is that people are getting their news and how they're thinking about an election. Mm -hmm. It's this, a really was extraordinary – Was this yeah. an intelligence failure that basically the intelligence community seemed to have been largely oblivious to what the Russians were doing in the social media space, um, in part because I think it fell between the cracks of what various components of the government – are supposed to monitor. But was it an intelligence failure? So I know Michael Morell has said it was. I, I guess I don't – I don't. Um, and he was a predecessor of mine. Right. He was the deputy director of the CIA and has 33 years of experience at CIA. So I, I respect his views a lot. But um, I wouldn't call it an intelligence failure, um, you know, but I would say that uh, maybe well, there's – if you were a, not aware of an, it and, and you were not – if you were not aware of the extent of it, 
um, that sounds like the definition of an intelligence failure. So let me ask you, though, yeah. that would make it seem as if anything we were not aware of is an intelligence failure, right? I mean, that's a little bit hard of a bar to, to well, set for get... what's an intelligence <laughs> failure and what's not. Right. I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say that if you put together analytically the fact that so many people are actually getting all of their information through these platforms – together with the fact that the Russians were using it so extensively, that gives you the picture that you have now, right, that, right. that in a way we didn't have then. That's, there's part analysis here. There's part collection. There's part, you know, a variety of different things that are thing. And honestly, we could have done better from the policy perspective in thinking that through too, right? I mean, there's a lot to be said in this space. So I don't – I think we all uh, have a piece of that um, to live with. I, I do think, though, that, you know, even – Knowing that, I'm not sure, honestly, that our reactions would have been different or that I would have made different decisions about what our responses were. And that's something uh, to consider, you know, as well in terms of how much difference does it make in, um, in the context of what we did leading up to. I think it does make a difference to what my response is today on these issues. In other words, after the election, I think, you know, and in this current environment, we do have to think through these issues in a different way as a consequence of the additional knowledge that we've gained through this experience. So I don't know. Well, what do you think, no. what do you think um, the, the kind of consequences of a much more muscular response would have been along the lines of what Mike was talking about before, you know, uh, cyber attacks on Russian media, on the intelligence services, perhaps even on Putin's family or oligarchs? Like what would have the – negative consequences of that been. Right. So it's really the pro and con argument that we had when we thought about should we respond even to what they've done already prior to the election or after the election. And uh, and here's sort of, you know, how we parsed it. We sort of said, okay, given what we're seeing, what the intelligence community is telling us about what they're doing and not doing, right, if we take the action right now before the election – um, the possible downside is that they react by actually going after trying to affect the vote. And um, and even though the intelligence analysis of the electoral infrastructure was such that we didn't think they could actually essentially throw the election one way or the other, they could delegitimize it, which was essentially one of their clear goals, right, mm -hmm. was to delegitimize the election, make it appear as if it was not, in fact, a fair and appropriate election. And so, um, so in that scenario, we could actually be helping them go down that road. We could also be telling the American people that they were having more of an impact than they actually were, which, again, is doing their work for mm -hmm. them on some level. And, uh, and so we saw some significant downsides to having that kind of a response before the election, right? I think on the, the – uh, the question was, so what's the upside of doing that? And we tried to think through, and I, honestly, you know, given that our objective in response was basically um, one to deter them from doing this in the future, right? It didn't seem like it mattered whether you did it before the election or after mm -hmm. the election for that purpose, right? And uh, and so that didn't seem like a, a valuable thing under the circumstances. And so said, okay, so let's wait till after the election. So then I think you have the question of if you take my logic, right? that it really – there's no upside and all downside to doing it before the election. You could still ask the question, why don't we have a more aggressive response after the election, right? And and there I think it's hard because it's, it's a question of now we get through the election. We have President Trump, 
as our coming in president. He has a very different perspective on Russia. And uh, and I think, you know, and that's obviously generous. And <laughs> how, um, can yeah. I stop you there? How how concerned were you about uh, Trump's perspective on Russia? And part of that is the mounting evidence of the contacts uh, between the Trump campaign and various Russian actors. How concerned were you in that period? I think I can just even tell you I was concerned from a policy perspective. I mean, what I saw of how President uh, Trump um, responded to questions about Putin, about how he talked about Russia uh, during the campaign and even after the election and prior to him taking office, struck me as just wildly disconnected from reality in many well, respects. So let me, and, yeah, but let me follow up on that. Um, there's, so there's the policy piece, but you know, you're the former deputy uh, director of the CIA. Um, you know something about Russian uh, intelligence tactics. Your um, boss, John Brennan, was really fired up about the contacts between the Trump campaign. So and did Russia. did you did you think um, that there was a um, significant possibility um, that uh, that President Trump or President Elect Trump had actually been compromised by the Russians? Was that something that occurred to you um, at that in that period? There's just no question that I was very concerned about the degree to which winning or unwitting, uh, you know, contact and um, influence had occurred, essentially. And and I think, you know, Director Brennan put it well in his testimony. I, It's true that the Russians are, are very, um, uh, you know, experienced and uh, very effective at that kind of contact and in trying to essentially um, occur influence even without necessarily their subject recognizing it. And uh, and certainly I was concerned uh, overall that that not be the case. And, you know, President Pe- I think at the same time, you have to make sure that the next president has everything that they need in order to do an effective job governing the country. And you also want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to help them do that. And at this point, as a civilian out of government, but clearly paying attention to <laughs> the news and the Mueller investigation. Trying um, not to. <laughs> do, do you, um, uh, do you, what's your, what's your view of that question um, at, uh, at, at this point? I have really the utmost respect for Bob Mueller. I, I am uh, really, uh, honestly, just very comforted by the fact that he's looking into the situation. And I think Whatever he comes out with will be credible, and um, and that's what I'm going to look to. To yeah, your uh, your former boss uh, uh, John Brennan has been quite outspoken about our president. Uh, he's called him a demagogue, uh, a liar, venal, corrupt. Uh, Even quoted you, Cicero the other day. Do you share <laughs> uh, John Brennan's view of uh, the president of the United States? I, I am. Deeply concerned that at the end of this administration and his uh, time in office that we are going to be more isolated, less influential in the world, and more divided as a country. And I think uh, it is really – I think all three of those things are to the great detriment of, you know, a government and a country that I love and that I've worked very hard to try to support in a variety of ways. And it's really quite depressing to be honest. Uh, just to take you back to the uh, the 
controversy du jour about the informant in the uh, Trump campaign that the president tweeted on Thursday, starting to look like one of the biggest political scandals in U.S. history, Spygate. Um, And the scandal, again, is that the Obama administration had uh, somehow uh, placed a spy, an informant, into uh, the Trump campaign. Your, I mean, I, I, you know, surely well, you realize that I think that's ridiculous, but it's not, um, you know, this will play out in the way that it plays out and there'll be uh, the facts will be put out. Whether or not actually anybody listens to that is a whole other issue. And I think the the characteristic of the tweet and the, the debate that we're having is that it's just um, – it's very unfortunate, it seems to me, that – the current president of the United States uh, goes after the institutions that he is responsible for um, in a way that is not uh, at least apparently the product of deliberation and thoughtfulness. And I really (laughs) – You are much more diplomatic (laughs) than your uh, former boss. That doesn't work on Twitter, by the way. You're not going to get a lot of retweets. Deeply unfortunate. (laughs) I am – yeah, this is not my – yeah. Actually, I want to go back to an earlier period in your um, government career before all the Russia stuff happened. Um, And um, when I got to know you, you were deeply involved in this – Obama administration effort to kind of uh, put a legal uh, framework around um, some of our counterterrorism policies, drones, you know, in in particular, um, legal and moral uh, framework. Um, You worked uh, very hard on something called the PPG. See, I can do that, right? The Presidential (laughs) Policy Guidance, which is a kind of a... That's that's a separate show. Yeah, yeah, PPG, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what's up with PPG? Yeah. But... um, Did you have a thought? Did you have a question? I do have a question. (laughs) I do have a question, um, which is, um, you know, um, there was a time when... All of us were deeply involved in this question of, of you know, of drone strikes and, and um, you know, civilian casualties and, and finding an international law and finding the balance between, you know, uh, being successful in the fight against terrorism, um, but also um, adhering to uh, civil liberties and international law and all that. And now it seems like no one's talking about these issues at all. And yet uh, drone strikes are, are uh, considerably up in Yemen, for example. Um, uh, I, I think the Trump administration um, has not continued some of the work that you all did on this uh, on this kind of uh, set of rules governing uh, drone strikes, um, and we don't really know very much about what they're doing. What What are your thoughts about uh, about all of that? And 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 um, and are you concerned that this is uh, no longer a, a front burner issue? Yeah. It, it, so I have thoughts. I'd <laughs> say the first one is just that. It strikes me that, um, as you say with the PPG, they appear to have uh, at least amended it, if not pushed it to the side, and uh, and that we've seen an increase in the number of strikes and um, you know and and more delegation essentially in terms of the decision making on these issues, and uh, and it's very unclear to me what the impact of that is in terms of whether or not we're actually somehow being more effective in these areas. And I think 
that would be a question that you'd ask and, and sort of at what cost, right? On the other side of things, I'd say that he's also engaged, meaning President Trump, I think, and the administration, um, but really uh, he himself has, has engaged in a considerable amount of anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? So we've seen the retweeting, for example, of those propaganda videos that came out of um, Britain First and other things like that. And, uh, and there was the anti-Muslim ban, and there was, uh, you know, the executive order on Guantanamo and other things like that. And all of those, you know, based on my counterterrorism experience, uh, are things actually that make us weaker from a, a counterterrorism perspective. Um, you really feed into the rhetoric that uh, international terrorist organizations are propagating against the United States, that the West is at war with Islam, that this is all part of it, and that just feeds that rhetoric. And moreover, you really, um, uh, in a negative way, affect your potential partnerships in trying to combat terrorism. And uh, and in fact, there was a, a very good article, I think, uh, written by um, former director Clapper and Josh Geltzer and Matt Olson and all of them saying these types of things. And so I think, you know, it, it is reasonable to question whether or not the current policy is as effective, frankly, um, as it has been in the past to try to combat terrorism. But all of that is, you know, if you're in the kinetic space, frankly, you know, you've already lost the game to some extent. The real way to combat terrorism comes much earlier in the process. And it's really about trying to help governments essentially effectively deliver services to their citizens and to, uh, you know, promote scenarios in which people have a voice in their government and therefore to essentially combat um uh, you know, extremist violence, uh, violent uh, ideologies in various places. Mm-hmm. And and there again, I think, you know, what's going on in terms of the rhetoric that's being provided is very negative. So I, I'm concerned that it's under, uh, you know, as you say, it's sort of under the radar because there's so much other news mm-hmm. uh, to sort of go across the board. And it's really not being evaluated in an effective way in terms of, you know, what's in the best interest mm-hmm. of the United States and things. But I think it also lends to what I said earlier, which is to say that it, it, these policies are, again, dividing us more as a consequence, isolating us more and making us less influential mm-hmm. in trying to deal with the national security and foreign policy issues for the United States. And I think there's a whole secondary discussion to be had about whether or not the way we as a country are actually dealing with terrorism, international terrorism in particular, is uh, the most effective way to deal with it. And, you know, frankly, there's a lot of other issues that we're facing that we should be focused on. But Well, you're, you are, uh, as I understand it, dealing with a lot of uh, big uh, global issues uh, and problems that need to be solved in your current job. So let's just uh, ask you one <laughs> question is, about that. What is your that. current job? <laughs> uh, uh, at, at Columbia University, it's called the... Yeah, I love my job. So I'm working for Columbia World Projects. It's a a presidential initiative, meaning President Bollinger, who's the president of Columbia University Initiative um, at the university. It's university-wide, and it's really uh, an effort to bring research and scholarship to bear on huge social fundamental challenges that we're facing around the world. And this is sort of the key part in partnership with folks who are trying to solve those problems on the ground in a way that actually allows you to measure impact and at the same time bring back that information into the university to enrich research and scholarship. And it's extraordinary. We're working through a set of challenges. We, we did a big discussion on uh, energy, energy access. There are over a billion people around the world that don't have access to electricity. 
We know through a tremendous wealth of research and scholarship on the connection between that and poverty, on health, on food security, on economic stability. This is a critical issue to human development. And uh, we brought people in and asked them from around the world who are working on this issue from different perspectives, where could research and scholarship actually lend tremendous value to your work, possibly transform your ability to expand access? We talked to professors across the university who said, these are areas where we're working. This is where we think we could have partners and do something that's transformative. And we develop projects out of that. We work through those. We see whether or not we can fund them. And we essentially uh, ultimately hope to implement them. And now we're working on a piece of inequality that I think is utterly critical. So, And you find that there are ways to sort of operationalize these ideas so you're not just you know, in the ivory tower with a lot of smart people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the idea. And it's yeah. really extraordinary. We've got, we've got an amazing uh, project right now that deals with food security that is about providing essentially predictive climate analysis for key agricultural areas around the world in middle-income and lower-income uh, countries that helps essentially the World Food Program and countries that are providing assistance to their farmers, you know, What's going to happen in the next five to ten years? How can I actually change my crops to get ahead of the curve? How can I make sure that we're producing food that needs to be produced? Very cool. We're, 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 we, you know, we're uh, proud to be able – Skullduggery is proud to be able to play a small <laughs> part in solving the world's problems you with you. That's not something we usually <laughs> <No>. do. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, it was great to have you uh, as our guest on Skullduggery, and we hope you'll come back. Wonderful to be with you both. I always enjoy it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And SiriusXM subscribers, you can now listen to Skullduggery on POTUS Channel 124. We'll talk to you next week.